I want to make a couple of comments about this verse we started with. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 and verse 15. Verse 15 says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And earlier in the passage, as I pointed out, Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians to be givers to the offering in Jerusalem using the model of God's impoverishing himself by giving the Son, his very own Son, and enriching us because he came to bring us with him to the new earth forever. We who were full of sin and darkness, he loved us and stooped down to save us. And Paul explains this in different ways in his letters, but there's a particular word that Paul uses to describe this gift. Thanks be to God, 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, for his inexpressible gift. That word inexpressible is never used anywhere in the New Testament except for right here in this verse. In fact, it's kind of a rare word in all of Greek literature if you start looking at it. It's an interesting word which points out something that's very outside of our experience, something almost mysterious, something we can't quite put our hands on, something that's very difficult to explain. And this word inexpressible really has three different ideas wrapped up in it. I'm not really sure which idea to apply to the birth of Jesus Christ, where God gave his son to die for us. I know as uh, somebody who has studied uh, hermeneutics for quite a while, which is how to interpret scripture, there's a rule in hermeneutics. It's that the the passage means one thing. Unless the author meant a double meaning, he's saying one thing. Now, we might disagree which thing it is, and we might say, well, some people think he's saying this, and some people think he's saying that. But the scripture means one thing normally in a verse. It's a, it's a staple of, of uh, how to interpret scripture. But what I'm going to do is take this one word for just a few minutes and show you the different ways of looking at how this word is used. And really, every one of them can apply to the sending of God's son. What does it mean when he says inexpressible? Well, first, it is what you would think. It means it defies expression. It's inexpressible. Something we try to put into words and we can't. Some of us have received Christmas gifts this year. Some of us are going to receive them tomorrow. Uh, sometimes you receive a gift and it's like, oh, why did they give me that? You know what I'm saying? Sometimes, uh, you know, maybe when our kids are small and we get these gifts and we're like, how do we say thank you? But, you know, we're not really sure what to say to make the person know that we love them and we're thankful that they've thought about us, but that's not really what we wanted. When I was a small boy, my dad will never uh, forget this story. Uh, Somebody gave us at Christmas a green tomato pie. I don't know if you've ever had those before. I did not eat any. I think I was seven or eight, and I said, no way, okay? And my dad, I remember him standing in our little kitchen, uh, and uh, he ate a bite of it, and he said, this is really gross. Uh, But he says, how do you thank somebody 
in your church. He's the pastor, you know, and people are bringing. And so he said, dear, dear Mrs. So-and-so, thank you so much for your kindness in baking that pie. Pies like yours don't last long in our house, is what he said. And it was true. It did not last long uh, in, our, in our house. So, so you, you, tr- you struggle to find the words. But sometimes you get a gift that is so overwhelming, you just, you just, you're moved maybe to tears, and, and you just can't find words to express what it is you would like to say. And that's what this word on the face of it means. It is something that is inexpressible. Now, we can't say that, well, we just, there's no words to describe the gospel, because obviously the gospel is explained in the New Testament. Uh, you, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing to say, well, we don't have the words to express such and such because uh, we, the scripture does express ideas to us and we'd better know what those are. We, don't, we are not saved by believing in believing. We're believing in something in particular. And so there are ways that the, the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ are explained. For example, if we were to read just this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Of course, it's the subject of the Corinthians giving, but they're supposed to model their giving after God's giving of his son. So when we see uh, what these scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and we see how Paul wants them to give, it's signaling to us, this is how God gave. So he says to them, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, uh, he says, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, And then by the will of God to us. That's what he's saying about other people who have given, Paul says. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then they gave themselves to us. That's what giving is. It's giving of yourself. As I said earlier, it's impoverishing yourself that you might enrich somebody else. This kind of giving is a selfless giving. We don't think about ourselves. We think about the person we're giving to. And that's what God's focus was when he gave Jesus Christ. His focus was on the people that Jesus is going to save. It was a selfless gift. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 and 9, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. This is connected in the context with the love of the person who is giving. And Paul says, if if you love these saints in Jerusalem, you will give to them just like God gave his son. God's gift was not only selfless, God's gift was loving. And you think about it, everything God does is for his glory and for the good of his people. But there's really no reason God had to give his son except that he loved us. There, there was nothing he was getting from it. He, he wasn't going to end up more perfect than he already was, more holy than he already was. God wasn't sitting up in heaven saying, you know, I'm really lonely. I need something to do. You know, eternity's really, you know, getting boring here. Not at all. God is perfectly fulfilled in and of himself. He's a perfect being. The per- we, we don't have words to describe how perfect God is. Why would he have created us and redeemed us? And the answer is that he loved us. Gifts that we give that are modeled after God's giving are gifts of love. And so that's a word that describes this gift. It's selfless. It's loving. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 8, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, 
not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You've heard that verse before, right? But remember, it also reflects back to the kind of gift God gave. God gave cheerfully. He didn't give reluctantly or under compulsion. And so he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is not just a selfless gift and a loving gift. It's a willing gift. God did this because he wanted to. And that's the only way to explain it. So there are ways that we can, ex- that we can express the gift. But really, when you think about this and try to explain how wonderful it is, and the, the size of the gift or the magnificence of it, the significance of it, words begin to fail us. And that's what Paul means when he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, a gift that defies expression. There's another way this, this term inexpressible can come out. It's not just inexpressible, it's inexplicable. It defies explanation. There's a lot of things that we can't explain. God created the whole world out of nothing. Ex nihilo, right? That's the Latin. Out of nothing, God created everything. Can you imagine nothing? You can. You say, yeah, I can. You're just thinking of some big black space. But you know that space didn't even exist until God created it. Blackness didn't exist. There's, we can't just think about nothing because it's outside of our experience. But God created that. How do we explain that? How do you explain the virgin birth? What really happened? What did the Holy Spirit do to cause that? We, it's a mystery to us. The incarnation, the God who created, remember on Sunday morning we've been talking about this, he created the world, he, he uh, 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 resustains the world, and he redeems the world. That's Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1 is talking about. And he is God who does not have a body like men, and yet he came and took on a body of flesh. How is that possible? There, are, there is no real explanation. We, we can describe it as much as we can, and we say, well, you know, the rest of it is just a mystery anyway. We're trying to explain a mystery, and you can't explain a mystery. And so this is inexplicable, and that is what this word means when it says, thanks be to God for his inexplicable gift. Why would God have sent his son to save us? There's no explanation for it, except that he loved us. And I love it in Romans chapter 5 when he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't clean us up first. He didn't make us lovely. He died for us while we were sinners. For God so loved the sinful world that he sent his only begotten son. There's a third way that this word is taken. In some contexts outside of the scripture, because remember I said this word is only used one time in the scripture. In some contexts, it has the idea of a mystery or something wonderful, something you can't really understand, something that you can't quantify, something that you can't fathom. And I've said here that not only is this, uh, this gift uh, inexpressible and inexplicable, it's inexhaustible. It, it defies estimation. You can't say how big it is, how wide it is, how deep it is. Isaiah tries to quantify God's knowledge in Isaiah 55. You know this verse, my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I think you're familiar with that passage. And we think, well, we know where the heavens are. They're up there. We know where the earth is. And that's a great big distance. But, you know, for somebody in this culture, when Isaiah lived, they had not seen the earth from an airplane like most of us have. They hadn't been to maybe a very, very high tower to look down. Their high towers were, could be high, but not they're nothing like a skyscraper in, in New York or Chicago like a lot of us have been and looked look down from that height. We've even seen pictures of the earth from the space shuttle. You've probably seen pictures of the moon rise, uh, or, uh, or the earth rise, I should say, uh, on, on the moon, that, that incredible picture. We get height in a different way they did. For them, when they looked up and saw the birds flying, they would think they couldn't understand how, in, how that looked, how it must have been to see that. They, they could only imagine it. And so when the author says, for as high as, your, as the heavens are above the earth, it's, it's a, the kind of distance that defies anything we can imagine. It's something that we can't quantify, something that we can't fathom. And that's what this word means when it talks about the coming of Jesus Christ. Christmas is a profound mystery. And we can't express it as much as it ought to be expressed. Our thanks to God, uh, it fails us to express the thanks we want to. And we can't explain it either. And we can't exhaust it in speaking of it. All we can do is thank God for it. And that's what we do at Christmas. We thank him for his coming. Let's bow together.